0: I wanted to be thrown into the deep end and sink or swim. And do some things that no one is asking for. When you have something of use, start to socialize it.
1: Welcome back to Venture Visionaries. I'm Thomas Sagemann. One challenge that I've had in my podcast so far is really defining what exactly I mean by venture visionaries. On one hand, when I say venture, I'm referring to high growth businesses and venture visionaries as the folks with the strategic business acumen to build great products, organizations, and markets around them. But on the other, I'm talking about visionary world improvement Venture, in its essence, isn't just about business. It's about embarking on a journey of transformative change, both for ourselves and our world. Over our last few episodes, we've been deeply focused on that transformative change in ourselves. But I thought it would be interesting to take a look back at the world of business where we got our started. And in the world of business, particularly in tech, there's a pivotal yet often underestimated player in what it takes to be truly strategic. That's human resources. Now, I know, I know, as somebody who's built my career in talent, I'm clearly biased. But there's probably no part of the business that most consistently takes up resources and yet is least understood for its strategic value. But today's guest, Andrew Bartlow, has mastered this realm, turning HR into a strategic powerhouse. With over 25 years of experience in the field, the co-author of Scaling for Success, People Priorities for High-Growth Companies, and a career spanning transformative roles, Andrew's insights are a treasure trove for anyone looking to leverage human capital as a strategic advantage. And his own career journey offers a blueprint on how to elevate any career and role into a deep strategic partner to your organization. We're going to dive deep into Andrew's journey, exploring how HR is not just a cost center, but a key to unlocking business growth. We'll unpack his playbook on aligning HR strategy with business objectives and discuss the powerful impact of strategic HR leadership. Now, Andrew's career really reads as a love letter to HR folks really interested in elevating themselves. But my hope for you today is that no matter your field of focus, you leave inspired to show up as a more strategic person in whatever your role is and understand how you can play a more critical role in driving your organization to success. Without further ado, let's dive into that conversation with Andrew. you, what are some of the ways that HR has most significantly changed in the last 25 years? And what are some of the things that have stayed the same? And maybe related to that, what do you think has stayed the same that is in need of a major overhaul? And what stayed the same that needs to stay the same?
0: Yeah, the the benefit of hindsight is 2020 vision, and I've been around for a while. What's changed? This war for talent over the past dozen years or so, the really strong bull market run prior to COVID, prior to the Mm. environment that we're in right now with rising interest rates, has really increased the prominence of human resources, particularly Mm. talent acquisition, but also worker engagement, a lot more focus on HR during the war for talent. That's been something that is both a positive and potentially an overused strength. Somewhere along the way, many groups lost the connection between attraction and retention of talent and the bottom line impact to an Mm. organization. It became Mm -hmm. a end unto itself to Mm -hmm. attract and retain people without connecting all the dots. That's something I think that probably tilted a bit too far now we're starting to see shift back a bit with more of a connection on worker productivity and organizational effectiveness.
1: When you walk into an organization, if you think about a theoretical organization that has tilted too far on the attraction and retention for the sake of it, what are the first three things that come to mind that you expect to see? Let's see. Let's
0: say that I'm talking to the head of human resources. Could be the CEO. Slightly different conversation. But I might ask, what are the top few things that your organization is trying to accomplish? If the HR leader talks about HR things, then they're probably not as focused on the organizational outcomes that Mm. they could be. If the HR leader is talking about accelerating the product roadmap or increasing revenue or getting new product to market, geographic expansion, those are things that then they can tie HR initiatives to. If the HR leader is talking about, you know, air quote, traditional HR topics, like I want to drive more diversity uh, representation in the workplace. I want to retain as many workers as possible. I Mm -hmm. want to increase engagement scores. I want to provide a growth ladder and framework for all of our employees. Those are all good things. But those are secondary or even tertiary initiatives and activities that ideally should be in support of your Mm. primary organizational goals.
1: Have you ran into leaders who are kind of struggling with walking that kind of fine line between how to talk to the business, how to talk to potential and current employees? And what do you find helps tie the two? I run into this all the time
0: both with HR leaders as well as CEOs and founders in the startup mm. world. The dirty secret that's maybe not a secret is so many of us in human resources fell into this function. You know, mm. never really planned to be in it, never really trained for it, like have strong first principles thinking and have figured out how to do things over time and you know might understand our stakeholders and are trying to meet their requests, demands, expectations. The risk, though, of following the ball, of following where your individual stakeholders may be leading you, is that those stakeholders, and you know could be the CEO, founder, could be the frontline employees that are asking for something, yeah. those stakeholders only have their own limited perspective only have their own view of the world. The employees want to earn more money and get promoted and have good work-life balance. Usually that's oversimplified, but those are primary drivers. CEO, founder, Wants to have a good place to work with a positive reputation that can attract talent and make the investors happy and you know meet the goals of a venture-funded business, which Mm. is explosive growth, usually. But neither of those two constituents really know what HR can and should do. And so that leads to, you know, often a pull to do. Tasky activities, buzzy in the zeitgeist activities, things that yeah. there might be attention and often emotion around, but may not be as firmly rooted in providing a strong foundation for success for the organization as someone that could and should you know, really be steeped in the function to understand what good looks like, how things mm. work, mm. how to sequence and prioritize things. I guess you know specifically, I, I could provide all sorts yeah. of examples there. Let's say. You hear strong, consistent requests from your employees that they want to have more growth, learning, and development opportunities. Great. You're hearing that loud and clear. It's on your engagement survey. People are talking about it. Some people leave the organization because they get growth faster elsewhere. It's common sense to think that that might be a place to put your time, attention, and dollars. Mm. However, if you step back and you think about what are some of the other things that we need to accomplish at this organization, is Mm. meeting that request the most important thing right now? Mm. Are we at the right stage of growth, maturity, financial stability to be able to do that well? I'm a fan in general of providing more growth development and learning opportunities for people, Mm. but that's out of context. You have Mm. to apply the context of your organization to understand, well, what we're really facing right now is we're behind on delivering our product roadmap. And instead of putting training into broad, soft skills... We need to provide stronger project management or agile waterfall development skills. Mm. We need, so your focus might be elsewhere. It's not always the presenting problem. It's not mm. always the most voices or the loudest voice that mm. you should be listening to. So mm-hmm. some perspective and some critical thinking around yeah. what's most important right now. And, and maybe there are some analogies. I'm a parent. I have two little girls. They're sweet. They're at fun ages right now. And it's not a perfect analogy, but mm. between parenting and being a leader at an organization with mm. dozens, hundreds, even thousands of workers, you find some similarities in that you might may find people asking for something that isn't what they really need. That doesn't mean we always know better, but that means it's up to us as leaders or as parents to filter. My kids are asking for candy. That doesn't mean I need to give them candy mm. all the time. Like They might need yeah. to eat a vegetable every once yeah. in a while. It's up to us to provide that filter and that broader perspective.
1: What is your coaching for somebody who's walking in saying, you know what, the kids are asking for candy, they don't need more candy, but they don't think I'm the parent. They just think I'm the person on the street at the trick or treating. How do I hold them long enough to give them what they need before they just kick me out?
0: I think it starts with having a plan. Keep it really simple. And by plan, I mean like a people plan, just like you might have a financial forecast and you might have a workforce plan, which maps out what hires you'll need, doing what, where and when. You probably want to have a people plan. You know, think of it like a product roadmap. Mm. What are the things that you need now? What's fundamental, foundational? What can you build on? How do you sequence that? You know, different things take different amounts of time, effort, and energy. It's very similar. Peter Clark at Excel, I think, said that most directly for me. And I, I quoted him in my book about yep. you know a people plan is, you know, similar to building a product roadmap. Yeah, you know, rather than say yes or no in isolation, you know, think about it in a controlling way. You know, think of it more like painting the picture. You know, listen and learn for some period of time. And then I'm going to share out what the next three or five things are that we'll work on. Or we'll talk about a phased approach to building our foundation as an organization. And once you have that people product roadmap, then you can start to negotiate things in and out. Where if the next Mm. ask comes in from wherever and it's urgent, you can say, well, does this, does it make sense to insert this now? You know, if so, you know, what other resources are we going to bring to be able to deliver that or what comes off the list or gets delayed? I think that that's just rational rather than a first in, first out or managing through your inbox or, you know, addressing the biggest business card that comes to you with a request
1: what do you think is one idea or concept that you think is most often misunderstood by traditional HR professionals when they dig into your book, Scaling for Success? Why do you think that's misunderstood? And what do you often wish you could be in the room to help them understand? I don't think I touch on
0: it as directly in the book as I do in some of my more recent blog posts and and writings. It's fundamentally connected. I think something that is fundamentally misunderstood is the service mindset that many human resources leaders and executives bring to an organization. In general, a service mindset is a wonderful, powerful, strongly connecting approach. However, there is great value in thinking about how you provide that service. So is that service transactional and operational? Are you bringing the candy for our earlier mm. analogy? Mm and so many people in the human resources profession view themselves as incredible service providers and you want to have good culture and a good transactional relationship and and engage in a positive way with some of the role models you know positive values that sort of transactional service mm. is not at all enough and certainly mm. not enough For a strategic human resources executive. If you want to elevate, you actually have to elevate beyond the transaction and still be a nice person to work with and still think about your role as being of service to the organization and all of its stakeholders. But often the greater service that you can provide rather than responding to that email immediately or mm. delivering on that request right now might be to develop your people product roadmap might mm. be to you know thoughtfully design how the organization operates, and do some things that no one is asking for. That doesn't mean you just make up this stuff and try to find yeah. something off the wall. But your role, I think it should be as a strategic human resources professional, it should be less of a server in a restaurant, mm. filling up the water glass before someone asks or you know, taking the order for the cheeseburger. And it should be more like a physician in a, mm. in a doctor's office who is mm. understanding symptoms and diagnosing root causes and providing courses of treatment Mm. or sometimes referring Mm. you out to a specialist people hopefully i don't do this hopefully not a lot of people do don't walk into a doctor's office and say hey i really want 12 weeks of physical therapy or i'd really like these three drugs what they describe is I have these issues or these pain points, or this doesn't feel right. How can you help me be healthy? And then the yeah. physician is is figuring out how to support that.
1: One of the things that I anyone is struck by, quite frankly, looking at your resume, is that they're talking to a world-class expert when it comes to HR. But I wonder if you could like rewind the tape and remember Andrew 20 years ago. How did you think about building that credibility with stakeholders earlier on what did you see that worked and and maybe even probably even more useful for us is there anything you tried that didn't work
0: what often didn't work I'm guilty of this was some arrogance in an awkward power dynamic where someone has a lot more power much bigger business title might be my boss and is asking for something i directly and not as kindly as i should tried to prove how smart i was that they mm. needed to do xyz instead that didn't work. (laughs) I've certainly softened my approach over time, but I I have that edge in me. What didn't work as well was just doing the thing that was asked because Mm -hmm. there's always Mm -hmm. a trail of stuff that happens after that. You know, you eat the three hot dogs and you drink the can of Coke and then you feel terrible and then say the food was bad or something like that. What I did that did work, and I encourage others to do this, is take initiative, is Mm. be proactive, is Mm. do the things that are not being asked for. If someone has a specific request of you, think about two toots and a salute. So a toot would be an objection or a redirection. Andrew, I want nine hot dogs and three Cokes. Could I encourage you to consider a chicken salad? Or, oh, you really like our hot dogs. Um, have you tried our turkey dog uh, mm. <laughs> with, with no relish? Um, so a, a toot would be a redirection or, hey, maybe there's another idea. You as a partner, a service provider, a subordinate can, can do that and can probably figure out a way to do that effectively twice. After that, it's your job to salute and Mm. bring the hot dogs and make it happen and make it be as successful as possible. And Mm. then if at some point it doesn't work out, you Mm. have a growing list of I told you so's. You can choose how and when and if to deploy those I told you so's. Don't fight city hall too much. But two toots and a salute allows you to get a little bit of professional distance when a CEO is asking for something and they don't want to be talked out of it or they don't want to be redirected. At some point, that's their call to make. You don't need to die on every hill. That's one concept that can be useful. To get back to the more specific, how was I able to get through this earlier in my career? Be proactive. Do the things that aren't being asked for. I was single early in my career. I worked a lot of hours. It was not great work-life balance. I put more time than I should have and probably more time than I needed to into my Mm. work. But one of the things I did that really worked was I blocked out two or three hours at least once a week, Mm. usually when pretty much everybody else had gone home. I called that planning time. Mm. And I thought about what are the most important business levers and how can I affect them? What are the mm. big things that this organization is trying to accomplish and what can I do? From that, I came up with a new staffing model for the warehouse at Pepsi. Instead of running overtime, we should run a third shift in the mm. warehouse. Mm. And nobody asked me to do that, but I presented a recommendation that saved them hundreds of thousands of dollars in in my market unit. And ultimately, did I get credit for it? No. The warehouse director got credit for that. In other roles, like this strategic people plan that I'm encouraging, nobody's gonna ask you for that. Do that on your own private planning time. What is the product roadmap for HR? What should come first, second, and 19th? When you have something of use, start to socialize it. And then people will start to see you outside of the little box or the yeah. tight pigeonhole that might be their perspective of HR. They'll start thinking about you based off the thing that you're working on.
1: One of the things that GE was kind of made famous for was their leadership development program. That world feels so far away from high growth startup. What are some of the lessons or experiences you took from that that you think are still useful in our world today? And which ones can be adjusted? Let me provide a
0: little bit more context about yeah, what some of these programs are that we're talking yeah. about so at General Electric they were famous for the FMP program and in HR the HRLP program so financial management program also audit staff was kind of a you know subset of that which is very much an upper out group but we can you know talk a little bit about audit staff HRLP was a structured set of assignments over a call it a three- year period you would mm. get somewhere between three and six assignments at different businesses in different locations doing different disciplines within HR and yeah. FMP was the same thing so you might be in accounting you might be in you know, some sort of analytics or capital yeah. raising group so it was rotational got experience in different businesses with different leaders with different subdisciplines i think that's an incredibly powerful way to build a strong and broad foundation of experience yeah. I did not take part in one of those rotational programs. In fact, I went to Pepsi right out of grad school, turned down the offer from General Electric because I did not want a structured program. Mm. I didn't want to move at the same speed that my peer group did. I wanted Mm. to be thrown into the deep end and sink or swim. Yeah. So that's a lot of pressure on myself. I ended up constructing my own development program across multiple companies. I've been mm-hmm. in total rewards and talent acquisition and a lot of HR business partnering and lots of different disciplines at lots of different organizations because I've been willing to pick up stakes and move where it looked like the way ahead was blocked or I was running into a ceiling of some sort, or for whatever reason, the organization wasn't acknowledging you know my growth. In a function like HR, most organizations don't have a ton of HR people, so you're gonna run out of headroom. I created my own rotational program over 20 plus years yeah. of an in-house career. I think that the core concepts are are really good about developing a broad set of diverse experiences. That was tremendously valuable for those organizations that did it well. You know, Pepsi did something like that on and off. It was more of a very intentionally subdivided business with tiny P&Ls. My first job right out of grad school, I was the HR leader for a standalone market unit with its own president that was doing 200 million in sales Mm -hmm. and had about 300 people. And I was 22 years old, 21 years old. And I was effectively the CHRO for this not insignificant business and moved from that after 12 months and did another one and then did another one. And that sort of leadership development journey is really useful. GE did a nice job of matching it with classroom and academic learning. Mm. You would pull your cohort together and you know, have have sessions where you would learn about a certain topic and be exposed yeah. to senior executives. Those concepts are useful, but not directly translatable to today's mm small venture-backed organizations. GE could do that because it had hundreds of thousands of employees, reliably hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue, lots of revenue it had scale and it had mass. And the overall percentage of people that were going through some form of rotational training or leadership program was infinitesimal. I see startups try to create their own rotational or leadership development program, and they're at 100 people or they're at a couple hundred people. And that is a really tough thing to do well, particularly when your org is still evolving rapidly and immature, and you don't have seasoned managers in place, and you don't have Mm -hmm. the resources that a big established company might. I'd suggest, like, just be aware of your context. Can you help people get experiences at your org? Sure. Maybe that's moving them from design to product to engineering without having a formal program. Does it have to be formalized? No. Are there some trade-offs there? Of course, there's some trade-offs. But I'd suggest that different practices apply to different organizations that are at different sizes, stages, level of stability and maturity.
1: As somebody who both kind of coaches pragmatic CEOs dealing with real problems in their organizations and then teaches a classroom, are there any topics that you think are only kind of truly grokkable in one environment versus the other, the academic versus the pragmatic?
0: Full disclosure, I am very, very new to the you know, adjunct instructor role yep. at University of Illinois, and that's through the Graduate School of Labor and Employment Relations mm-hmm. that I attended many years ago that graduates some of the world's top HR leaders. Lots of folks that we know from People Tech Partners uh, are graduates of University of Illinois, Absolutely. LER. I'll be working with you know, future HR professionals in that program. And the class is Mastery of Business Fundamentals. What I'm anticipating when I start you know speaking with the students there is that they'll have limited real-world work experience. Some people have worked, but not, not for as long. It tends to be lower on average uh, overall work experience versus a top-flight MBA program. The average work experience will be two, maybe three years. I think there's a real opportunity to build a bridge between practical realities and proven academic research-backed fundamentals. And I think we often do ourselves a disservice by failing to build that bridge or make that link. The mm. book that you kindly referenced, "Scaling for Success," like I, yeah. I was the practical bank of that book. And my co-author, Brad Harris, is the associate dean of the MBA program at the top business school in Europe, HEC Mm. Paris. He's the academic. And together, we very intentionally are trying to tie together what's proven academically and what works in real life. And I think there's something special and there's something missing. And I think there's something missing in offerings around education of like getting the real life practical, roll Mm. up your sleeves, hear some real stories and situations and let's connect with it in a way that you can only do if you're on the job and you have real-world experience to draw on. The development program I run for human resources leaders, we have a case study format. Your company and the challenges that you're facing are the case study every week. Mm. But we have academic readings and Harvard Business Review articles and a bunch of other stuff that we draw on to provide the frameworks for people then to apply to their own context.
1: One of the things that feels like it's a bit of a thread running through your story is the desire to do things your own way. Does that feel right when I kind of describe you as as kind of an inherently contrarian in that way? And no matter how you think of yourself, what of those do you see as kind of childhood traits that you've always had? And what do you source them to or did you kind of develop them over time?
0: I don't think I've believed myself to be an inherently a contrarian, but I do feel this chosen career that I've committed my life's work. (laughs) I've been in HR for coming up on 30 years is largely misunderstood and is not as effective, as influential or as impactful as it could be. And so I, I don't know if that's a contrarian view, but I feel like honestly I've had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about mm. it from the very early days. That HR can be massively valuable, and mm. it, and it should be. And you know that's part of the reason I wrote the book was to try to yeah. spread the word and help other people get a perspective about how to be an internal management consultant. If I had to really condense. What's my view on HR? It's to be an yeah. internal management consultant. I think that's something that I've been, frankly, wrestling with since I was 20. You know, first entering the field and starting my master's program As you know, when I would tell people I'm in HR, I would get all sorts of weird responses. Like, <laughs> people must love you. You throw the holiday party and you hire people and you give them raises. And I was like, yeah, those are some of the things I do. Uh, or people, that must be really hard. You have to fire people. You have to lay people off that you have to say, well, yeah, those are things I do. Too. But what I spend more of my time on is helping leaders to be better leaders and helping an, an organization or a business unit to figure out what its goals are and what mm. programs and policies line up to do that. I think I've always viewed my work in more of a systemic way than a transactional way.
1: And when you think back to yourself as a kid, were you always the person trying to elevate the thing that you were doing or being a systems thinker? Or was the poor reputation in your view of HR the catalyst for for that part of Andrew coming out?
0: I've always been a striver. I've always been mm. an achiever. I've always been highly competitive. I've always wanted to be the best at whatever it is. I think in my evolution as a, as a human and as a professional, that's over time become Less about me and more Mm. about the function, more about the discipline, more about helping others
1: if you've kind of always been a striver, are there any early influences? Could be like a leading adults or peers who you think kind of shaped your view of what that kind of good striving leadership looks like? And if so, like, I'm just curious who might be on that list for you.
0: As a kid, I had kind of a limited universe, you know, growing up mm. in central Illinois with parents that were not business professionals. They themselves didn't have you know much of a broad world or business view publicly schools and and all of that you know so my growth and exposure has been through work has been through mm. business leaders just absorbing as much content as i can possibly get my hands on i'd share that a few early managers or you know internal clients have been yeah. really formative for me one, my first job right out of grad school, John Beresford was the regional HR director, and I was the you know young rep working in Twinsburg, Ohio. And he had me working on all sorts of different projects. And he, he would be on the phone with different business leaders talking about whatever the issue was and keep mm. me waiting in the guest mm. chair in his office, which rankled me, which frustrated me. Like, isn't, doesn't he think my time is valuable? Yeah. Like, I'm just sitting here for 20 minutes listening to him have these conversations until at some point I figured out. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty as well. Yeah that he was giving me the opportunity to listen in to mm. business partnering conversations. It wasn't golf that he was talking about. He was talking about people and management strategies and how he approached those conversations with the executives served as much more valuable role modeling and uh, sample language than anything I picked up in grad school. Seeing him and hearing him successfully interact as an yeah. HR leader with yeah. other businesses, ex- executives, that was just irreplaceable. Yeah. And he couldn't do that by like looking at somebody's emails or yeah. having somebody teach a class. Like I, I spent hours, <laughs> frustrated <laughs> hours with my little notebook. And I, I'm here to give you the presentation of some <laughs> inconsequential project that you put me on. And I would <laughs> listen to him you know, deal with a reorg or a yeah. senior leader change or territory swap, a merger acquisition deal that we were working yeah. on. That was immensely formative. And John went on to become the chief HR officer of Pepsi Bottling Group. He went on to become president of J.D. Power, You know, stepped out of HR and into the business. He was massively successful. And then another leader outside HR, a senior client at General Electric, Adam Wiseman. I've kept Mm. in touch with him over the many years. And Adam was just such a thoughtful, kind, humble, I'll say servant leader, even though I've tried Mm. to provide some nuance to the servant leader. He very consciously tried to provide calm, humble direction and vision to his Mm. team and engage his partners and his specialists in an incredibly respectful and welcoming way. And I've wanted to interact with people more like the way Adam Wiseman interacted with people in a way that like mm. makes you feel appreciated. He had that specialness about him. Those experiences... Seeing, not being told, to a certain extent, participating in what some people at the very top of their profession are doing yeah. was much more formative and much more valuable for me than any sort of academic class I ever took or, yeah. or even years of doing work in a particular job. It was not just being mentored, but almost like apprenticing myself to some yeah. of the people that are really good.
1: I'm curious how work-life balance or your view of what that is and what that should be has evolved over time. And what advice would Andrew today have for
0: Andrew then? It's a perennial struggle, I think, for for most people. Yeah, and particularly us, you know, strivers. I'll fill in some of the gaps, but I'll skip to the advice. Your relationships and your network are everything. Mm. Far more important than your degrees or your years, and certainly more important than another five hours spent working on whatever the project is at hand. Mm. Like over Mm. the long run, your community and your relationships, your network are far more valuable. And that's something that I don't think I always appreciated. Mm. I tried to outthink and outwork everybody. You hear the competitive uh, flair and and how can I add more value too? Yeah. what needs to be done next? And nobody's asking for this, but we can do more. Or we can do it better. And so it wasn't really other HR people that I was ever in competition with because I was always in kind of separate, you know, independently run businesses where I was like my own little CHRO for little divisions. It was more of competing against myself, like trying to prove I wasn't just HR Andrew. And so, yeah, I definitely defined myself by work. I defined myself by my achievements at work. And mm. that helped me move up faster than maybe some yeah. other people would have but i paid a price for it too stress and fewer deep relationships early in life i always felt like i had this sense of of insecurity and hey if we're really going to go to the like you know yeah. childhood memories like my parents were part of a family business started by my grandfather that ended up going bankrupt uh, during my mm. high school years, and so a family mm. business failing. It was never very big. There was never anything yeah. like special, but we went from being, you know, middle class to like really being worried that we could lose the house. And yeah. so I always felt like I needed to provide security yeah. through career and financial success. And so I was trying to trying to establish that. I think working hard helped that. but it also in some ways like set unrealistic expectations and I didn't enjoy the ride as Mm. well as I could have. Mm. And so now I have more flexibility. I have more freedom. I have, you know, financial independence that I didn't have when I started my career. I allow myself a rebalancing.
1: Is there anything else you wanted to share with our listeners that I didn't ask the right question for you to get to?
0: We talked before you pressed the record button yeah. ar- around, like, what do I want to get out of this? Yeah. Um, maybe there's a theme of service in our conversation. Yeah. I truly do get self actualization. get gratification out of being useful, out of being helpful to others. And and hopefully there's something in our conversation that sparks a listener in a way that helps them see their role maybe differently or see some opportunity that they didn't see before. And if that happens, then, hey, this was a great success.
1: One of the reasons I love talking to folks like Andrew is that their expertise drips out of every answer. You can just hear the wealth of wisdom that has been built up over decades of practice in their thoughtful responses. And I'm not alone. Andrew's insights are very, very highly desired, particularly in the world of Silicon Valley. And one of the ways that he's worked to make that more accessible is through his new book, Scaling for Success, Hot People Priorities for High Growth Organizations. It is a must read for any startup executive, and you can find it on Amazon or wherever books are found. But I didn't just want to give a regular pitch for Andrew's book. I always think the proof is in the pudding. I wanted to reach out to specific people who've worked with Andrew and expressed his expertise on what exactly they thought his superpower was. How did he add value? And so for our Spoken Stories segment, that's exactly what we're going to do. First up, I talked to Michelle McDougall, VP of People at Semper Health. Andrew Bartlow is undeniably an expert in all things HR, but that's not his superpower. His real superpower is mentorship and coaching, elevating those around him, asking great questions, being a good listener, imparting some of his perspective to help you come to your own conclusions, really get to a great solution. That's Andrew's superpower. Brad Harris is the Associate Dean at HEC Paris and the co-author of Scaling for Success. Here's what he had to say about his co-author.
0: Andrew Bartlow is one of the most knowledgeable HR leaders in the game, and he is the thought leader for HR in rapidly growing
1: organizations. I think Andrew's superpower is being able to cut through the noise to deliver clear, actionable advice in a really kind and affirming way that inspires you to actually drive change. One of the things I'm struck by as I reflect on Andrew's story is the silent hero that is time. And not just any time, time that Andrew chose to deeply invest in his craft, to continue reflecting and learning. The kind of expert that Andrew is doesn't appear overnight, or even in a year, or even in two decades. It's been 25 years and counting of deep reflection. And thanks to that, there are literally hundreds and soon to be thousands of folks who will have and count better organizations because of him. Now, we're all not called to build great organizations, and I don't know in what ways you want to venture with your life or live out your vision, but in whatever way it is, I hope that you too are playing the long game, continuing to invest, continuing to build up passion with patience. Only time will tell what you have in store.